From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. So she faced criticism for writing about families in in which fathers and mothers were dysfunctional, were abusive, had abandoned their kids. Why focus on these sorts of characters? But I think the reason she did that is because of her own spiritual background. She wanted to use these characters as an example for maybe people in real life who were hurting and needed to kind of find a way to have spiritual growth. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Nadra Niddle. She's a Los Angeles-based journalist who has been a staff writer at Vox Media, Digital First Media, and the Gannett USA Today Network. Her writing has also appeared in The Atlantic, The Guardian, The New York Times, Salon, and religious publications such as Outreach and America Magazines. She's the author of Recognizing Microaggressions, which came out in 2019. Today we're talking about her recent book, Toni Morrison's Spiritual Vision. Faith, Folk Tales, and Feminism in Her Life and Literature. Nadra Niddle, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you for having me. So this is such a fantastic book. I will say I don't know a lot of Toni Morrison's writings, and your book both made me want to find out more about her writings, but also was such a wonderful introduction for me as a person who has a kind of background in religious and spiritual things. So I'm very, very grateful for the chance to talk to you today. But I wonder as a way of orienting our listeners, because I imagine that some listeners will be in the same predicament that I was in when I first encountered your book, would you take a few moments and just orient us towards Toni Morrison, a little bit about her life and a little bit about her work, so that listeners who may have heard the name but may not necessarily know how to place Morrison could have a little bit of reference? Sure. So Toni Morrison was born in the 1930s in Lorraine, Ohio. She was very smart as a child growing up there. She went to college at Howard University in Washington, D.C., and she became a professor and she also became an editor for a publishing house. And after being an editor for several years, she came out with her first novel, The Bluest Eye, which came out in 1970. And from there, she continued writing for the rest of her life. Many of her books were set in the Midwest. Many of them also explored issues of gender, race, religion, class, and other socio-political issues. And Morrison is an award-winning author, She has won the Pulitzer Prize. She's won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And she's widely considered one of the best contemporary American authors. So this is very helpful. And 
I mean, telling us a little bit about that, you mentioned along the way that, that she writes about women's issues, she writes about racial issues, and she writes about religious issues. I think that if most people with a casual acquaintance of Toni Morrison were to classify her, they would classify her probably using those first two categories. She writes about women's issues, she writes about racial issues. But what I really found fascinating about your book is the religious aspect. And one thing that that I did not know that I learned from your book and that I'm sure many of my listeners will be interested to find out is that Toni Morrison converted to Catholicism early in her life. And I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Yes, and that's something I didn't know. I was an English major in college. And at the time, I had no idea she was a Catholic until I would say 2017. I was asked to write an article for America Magazine, a Catholic publication about the rule of religion in Song of Solomon, which came out in 1977, and Beloved, arguably her most famous book, which came out in 1987. But Morrison, growing up, she had a wing of her family who were all Catholics, and at 12, she decided to become a Catholic herself. And she doesn't speak much about religion in interviews, nor was she asked before her death. I'm speaking about her in the past, I mean, in the present tense, but she did pass away, unfortunately, in 2019. But through this Catholic wing of her family that made her curious about Catholicism, she also said she was really interested in the aesthetics of religion and the rituals of Catholicism in particular. So she converted at 12, which is actually why we know her as Toni Morrison. She was actually born Chloe, but she was baptized under the namesake St. Anthony. And she was called Toni for short after St. Anthony. That's fascinating. And and let me take just a quick moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen, and I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Nadra Niddle. She's a Los Angeles-based journalist and has been a staff writer for a number of publications. She's the author of Recognizing Microaggressions that came out in 2019. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Toni Morrison's Spiritual Vision, Faith, Folk Tales, and Feminism in Her Life and Literature. Well, this was one thing that actually really grabbed my interest in reading your book, Toni Morrison's Spiritual Vision, and that is that if we think about Toni Morrison as a Catholic writer, then there are ways in which we can put her alongside writers like Flannery O'Connor or Walker Percy. And the reason why she is not classified with those other writers is kind of a fascinating discussion. And I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about, I guess, the ethics, the politics of classification when it comes to Toni Morrison as a Catholic writer. Well, I think you touched on it earlier when you said most people know her as writing about women's issues, as writing about racial issues. And she herself always described herself as a Black woman writer and said she was very proud to be a Black woman writer. And I think because of that, that's what interviews, that's what book reviewers focused on. But she was definitely a Catholic. She was definitely very serious about Catholicism. I think she had moved away from the religion a little bit towards the end of her life, but she had even said that Pope Francis could possibly lure her back to being a full-time Catholic and that she really liked him. But I, I think her being a Black woman 
and writing about those issues more overtly than religion is also one of the reasons she's not classified as a Catholic writer. I think the Catholicism is definitely there when you start reading her books and references to the Virgin Mary in many of her books, especially in Paradise, which came out in 1997. She's really focused on this Black Madonna character throughout that book. But if one isn't familiar with Catholicism, one isn't familiar with the Black Madonna, for example, they may not pick up on that. But you can see those references as early as her first book. There's just passing references to nuns in The Bluest Eye. And her next book, Sula, there's many references to not only the Virgin Mary, but Catholicism in general. In in your book, Toni Morrison's Spiritual Vision, you pick up this idea of the Black Madonna and you read the Black Madonna against a number of other kind of cultural images. And I'd love to just linger there for a moment. So when we're talking about the Black Madonna, you make comparisons between that image and the Virgin of Guadalupe and also Beyonce. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to kind of hear about kind of how, first of all, talk to us about what the Black Madonna is in Catholicism. So the Black Madonna, I mean, there's paintings that go back hundreds and hundreds of years at which the Virgin Mary was portrayed as a woman with dark skin. And there's many theories as to why some people believe that the paintings darkened over time because of their exposure to smoke and other elements that the paintings darken. The critics who don't believe that say, it's very clear that Mary in those paintings has been darkened, but the baby Jesus is not. So there seems to be a specific reason as to why Mary's skin was darkened in in those images. So people who do believe it was done intentionally think there's a pagan connection to that, that the earth goddesses, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of years ago, earth goddesses were portrayed as black because the most fertile soil right, would have been dark. And that the Virgin Mary, the people, ancient Europeans pretty much commingled the earth goddesses of the time with the Virgin Mary once Catholicism started to pick up. So that's the theory as to the origins of the Black Madonna. In terms of the Virgin of Guadalupe, which is someone that in Latin America, Mexican Catholics have gravitated to These representations are just ways that many people of color throughout the world have kind of found themselves in Catholicism. And I think Toni Morrison and Beyonce, who you mentioned, are some of those people who admire these, you know, Marys with dark skin because they feel it's a chance for them to be represented as holy women. And if you could just say a little bit more in particular about the way that Beyonce picked up this image of the Black Madonna, just because when I encountered it in your book, Toni Morrison's Spiritual Vision, it was amazing to me both the depth with which she was taking the imagery seriously and how she was also being playful and subversive of the imagery. And as we're moving towards our first break, I think this is a great way to kind of set up part of the conversation that will follow in the second segment about the ways in which both the Catholic image of the Madonna, the Virgin Mary, is being honored in what Beyonce did and also how it's being rethought in what Beyonce did. 
Yeah. So Beyonce in her last birth announcement for her twins a couple of years ago, she pretty much shot photos of herself kind of fashioned as this Madonna image. She had a, a veil on her head. She had other religious signifiers and, and jewelry that kind of made it obvious to, to those who are familiar with Catholicism that this was, in a way, some sort of reading or take on the Virgin Mary. And that once she had her twin, she took uh, a follow-up photo of herself in, in a similar kind of shrouded material holding her babies, posed just like you would see the Virgin Mary posed and and pictures of her holding the baby Jesus. Also, Beyonce, and I don't know if I get into all of this in my book, even in music videos that she's done, she, she has a song called Ave Maria, and she's played with this kind of imagery, you know, outside of her own children and birth and pregnancy announcements. So she's been someone who seems to be interested in Catholicism herself. I don't know how she identifies. She is also a Toni Morrison fan and has indicated that she has read Morrison's books, even that focus on Catholicism and on the Black Madonna in particular. And I just want to stress to listeners At no point are you seeing what Beyonce is doing with this imagery as intentionally sacrilegious or intentionally disrespecting the imagery. Instead, what I understand you to be saying is that you see her appropriating the image and making it her own. Now, those are my words, not yours. Would you agree with that or would you say it in a different way? No, I definitely agree with what you're saying. And in my book, I also quote the feminist scholar Bell Hooks, who discusses how African-Americans in particular, that we need some sort of image of a holy woman and that in popular culture, we often don't have these images of divine Black women. And I think that's something, whether Morrison was directly tackling the Black Madonna or just other characters that she kind of framed as divine, that Morrison clearly had an interest in portraying Black women as divine, as holy. And on the flip side, she also discussed Black women as a group who are persecuted in that way, share commonalities with Jesus. That's something that she discussed as well, that Black women often bear the cross. So when we look at books like her first one, The Bluest Eye, and we see Pakola Breedlove, who's the protagonist of the book, a little girl who's abused by pretty much everyone around her because of her skin color and their own internalized racism. We see how this little girl is persecuted, maybe not in the same way, but in related ways to the way Jesus was persecuted as well. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest is Nadra Niddle. She's a Los Angeles-based journalist and has been a staff writer for a number of publications. She's the author of the 2019 book, Recognizing Microaggressions. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Toni Morrison's Spiritual Vision, Faith, Folk Tales, and Feminism in Her Life and Literature. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. 
Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these kinds of conversations and interviews, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Nadra Niddle. She's a Los Angeles-based journalist who's been a staff writer for Vox Media, Digital First Media, and the Gannett USA Today Network. She is the author of the 2019 book, Recognizing Microaggressions. And today we're talking about her recent book, Toni Morrison's Spiritual Vision, Faith, Folktales, and Feminism in Her Life and Literature. In the first segment, we were talking about Toni Morrison's Catholicism. She chose to be Catholic when she was 12. She took the name St. Anthony of Padua, and that's where she got her pen name, Toni Morrison. And then you said that as she grew and lived her life, she drifted away from Catholicism. But along the way, she became interested in the ways that Catholicism has intersected with African religions, and in particular, West African religions of the Yoruba. And so maybe this is a good place to begin to bring that into the conversation. So when we talk about Toni Morrison's spirituality, how does this syncretism, this willingness to take Catholicism and weave it with other traditions, maybe even pagan ones, some might say, how does that factor into her spiritual development? So I think it it factors in just in the sense that her relatives who came from the American South still were very in touch with folk tales and traditions that could be directly considered directly taken from West Africa, that they didn't really lose some of those traditions. They also believed in things like ghosts and that some of them had psychic powers. She grew up with her mother and father telling ghost stories and grandparents as well. And her mother, she credits with having the gift of foresight. She also had a grandparent who was a midwife. And I think when you're looking at her books, you see examples of women who have gifts of foresight, who have gifts of healing, and who seem to be complete because they have managed to become Christians without losing the African foundation that is their ancestral heritage. I really like how you just said that, that they became Christian without losing their ancestral heritage. And one of the things that comes up at several points in your book, Toni Morrison's Spiritual Vision, is that oftentimes white Christianity and white Catholicism will look at that attempt to maintain an identity kind of over against the the blanching of whiteness and whiteness will label that attempt to maintain an identity and say, well, that's just magical thinking or that's just kind of spooky spiritualism. And so there's several questions that I want to ask you about this. But the first one is about that dynamic where white 
Catholicism, white Christianity, attempts to erase these very heartfelt attempts for persons to be both black and Christian by dismissing it as something else. Talk to us a little bit about that. So I I think Morrison in particular in her book, Paradise, really deals with this issue that if you are a person of color, and in that book, it has black characters who are more kind of modeling themselves after white patriarchs in greater U.S. society. It has women who are white, who are black, one in particular who's from Brazil, who ends up practicing and finding about a religion called Candomblé, which does mix together elements of Catholicism with elements of West African religion. And I think in in that book, you have women who are practicing this religion, who are considered evil. They're considered corrupting influences because they did not abandon the spiritual practices of their ancestors. So in Morrison's own life, I don't know exactly how she practiced Catholicism, how much of these West African elements she wove into her own spiritual practice. But I do know she credits African authors, specifically Nigerian authors like Chinua Achebe and um, Wali Soyinka with giving her an education of sorts. So in the 60s, There was some sort of African bookstore that she used to visit a lot in New York, and she ended up just reading as much as she could. And I think those influences are are in books. I've mentioned Paradise a lot, but outside of that, you can even find them in a book like Beloved, which I think she's most well-known for. Well, and we, we talked a little bit in the first segment about this image of the Madonna or the Virgin Mary. And in what you've just been saying about white Christian attempt to push black identity to the side, particularly when black identity is female, one of the images that comes up and gets utilized, and you Im- imagine and explore this in your book, Toni Morrison's Spiritual Vision, is the image of the witch. Yes. So talk to us a little bit about how kind of witches play into all of this. Yeah, I think in Morrison's books, there are many characters who get called witches, either outright. Or at least she frames them as witches and they're outcasts, whether someone directly calls them that or not. So I'll start with the book like Sula. So the the namesake character in that book leaves this small Ohio town when she's a young woman. When she returns, the, there's a, a plague of birds. They all die upon her return. There's other sorts of tragedies. And the people in the town end up regarding her as a witch. They don't want their children to play with her. They kind of all run into their homes as she passes by. And when she returns to town, she's described as wearing a long black dress, a black hat, and kind of other stereotypical signifiers of a witch. And when this character, I don't want to give away too much of the book for people who haven't heard it, but as the book goes on, And she's just kind of scapegoated, blamed for everyone's misfortunes. She is directly described as being a witch. And she is a character who did cause a lot of chaos, would be the kindest way to describe Sula and some 
outright tragedy. But you see this character in other Morrison books as well. In Sons of Solomon, there are characters, again, who are kind of described as being dressed in all black and who other people kind of don't want to interact with. In Paradise, which I've mentioned, there are a group of women who are living in a makeshift convent who end up being regarded as being part of a coven rather than a convent. So I think that's the way she kind of plays with those two words and witchcraft and Catholicism. The fact that there's a group of women who, who are living at an old Catholic school for Native American girls and it becomes kind of a convent and then kind of a coven. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Nadra Niddle. She's a Los Angeles-based journalist who's been a staff writer for a number of publications. She's the author of the 2019 book, Recognizing Microaggressions. And today we're talking about her recent book, Toni Morrison's Spiritual Vision, Faith, Folk Tales, and Feminism in Her Life and Literature. I want to linger for a moment with that convent coven that you just mentioned, because one of the ways that you analyze that is these women have basically built a place that is safe from white oppression and is based around what I interpreted to be a place where they could be themselves without fear of interference from the colonizing world. And you end one of your chapters basically saying, and the the white powers could not abide that. I'm paraphrasing here, but basically they had to eliminate that little oasis of black joy. Now, I just want to linger there for a second and and ask you to expand on that, because that was my impression kind of coming out of that chapter of how you were reading that moment of the destruction of the convent slash coven. But maybe I've misread you or maybe you want to say it in a different way, but I'd love to hear more about that, regardless of whether I've got it right or not. Sure. I would say it in a slightly different way, just meaning that the people who are literally trying to destroy them are a group of black men. So they're not directly white people who are doing this, but they are Black men who have aligned themselves with kind of a white patriarchal vision of the way society should be, especially in this little paradise that they have made for themselves. And the women in the convent, you know, includes some, she doesn't really specify exactly what everyone's race is, but you can kind of gather that at least some of them are are white, some of them are mixed race, some of them are black, that there's a combination of women. So I just wanted to clarify, I'm not directly saying that white people harm the women in the coven or that all the women in the coven are black, but they are outcasts in, in different ways. So one ended up leaving her babies in a car and the car overheated and they died. So, uh, you know, everyone as they should be is outraged by her for her negligence one other you know woman is described as just being promiscuous there's hints that some of them might be lesbian so just in in different ways they're all outcasts but in this convent slash coven they are accepted they are loved regardless of their sin regardless of what they look like and any other ways that have marginalized them in mainstream society. 
I really appreciate that clarification. And this points us towards something, a, a theme that you talk about in your book, Toni Morrison's Spiritual Vision. And that is that when Toni Morrison looked at her Catholicism, when she looked at her role as a person who had been raised in Christianity, raised in the stories of Jesus, she didn't read her Catholicism or her Christianity as rule-keeping. She read it instead as a kind of hospitality towards the outcasts, the very ones that would have found a safe haven in the convent slash coven. And I, I really liked that aspect of the book, but I, I would invite you to talk to us a little bit about how hospitality plays into both Toni Morrison's writing, but also her spirituality. Yeah, I, I think they're both very interconnected in the sense that she chose to write about people, you know, how Jesus described how he had come. He was a physician who would come for the sick, not the healthy. And I think she modeled her literature after that. She said she wasn't really interested in the model family and people who were necessarily functioning well and didn't have many problems. She went after people in her literature. She chose to focus on the character's who did have a lot of problems, who did need to have some sort of growth, who found themselves down and out. And for whatever reason, in some cases, that is because they became disconnected from their race and their ancestral tradition. Other times it was being a woman and dealing with some of the sexual violence and other sorts of violence that women deal with. But she was first and foremost concerned with those quote-unquote sick characters. And she was criticized for doing that as well by the late author and critic Stanley Crouch, for example, wondered why someone like Morrison, who did have a life that, you know, many people would dream of, who came from a loving, functional, two-parent home, why she chose to focus on Black characters in particular who didn't come from those sorts of households. So she faced criticism for writing about families in, in which fathers and mothers were dysfunctional, were abusive, had abandoned their kids. Why focus on these sorts of characters when her life was very different to what she was writing about? But I think the reason she did that is because of her own spiritual background and this idea that she wanted to use these characters as an example for maybe people in real life who were hurting and who needed to kind of find a way to have spiritual growth. She was very much concerned with younger generations, and she believed the novel was a way to pass on a lot of knowledge, folktales, other traditions to them. This was something that fascinated me about your book, Toni Morrison's Spiritual Vision, and that is that when Morrison would receive criticisms, for example, like the one from Stanley Crouch that you just mentioned, it didn't not impact her. But she had a very interesting, I thought, reaction to the way that critics read her. And this comes up to, uh, three or four times in your book. Tell us a little bit about how she thought about critics like Stanley Crouch. She didn't dismiss them, but she also took them seriously in a very kind of particular way. Yeah, one thing she said about criticism is that she detached herself to it or uh, from it to an extent. She was interested in how 
the works of Black women writers were reviewed, were received. And so that was one way she looked at critics. And Paradise was a book that was very criticized when it came out. Another way was she kind of criticized the critics. Sometimes she didn't believe that they had done a good job really reading the book well, that they didn't necessarily understand what the book was saying or that their reviews themselves were written very well. So I think those were some of the ways. The other thing, beyond Stanley Crouch, there was an interviewer who asked her, where are all the Black fathers in your book? Where books? Where are the good Black fathers? Why are you focusing on negative father figures? And she essentially said she was not writing to anyone or in a way she didn't use the term respectability politics, but essentially she was saying that she was not crafting characters to to necessarily be respectable, to make Black people look good. She was writing for herself, first and foremost, and what interested her. Well, this really fascinated me, exactly what you're saying. She said very specifically in a couple of quotations that you you cite in the book, she's not writing for the critics and she's not thinking about the critics when she writes. And and I, I love how you just phrased it. She was writing for herself, but she was also writing specifically, it seems, for audiences that needed these kinds of stories, that needed these kinds of mythologies and, and stories that didn't just fall into a kind of Western notion of scientific truths but rather stories that were open to the possibility of something greater than. And I don't quite know how to define that greater than. But as I'm saying all this, am, am I following the basics of kind of what you've laid out in the book, or would you say it in a different way? No, I think you're exactly right. Morrison was born in the 1930s, and that was during a time that was still considered the Great Migration. So the migration of African-Americans, out of the rural South into Northern cities, Western city. And I think she was wor- worried that as, as African-Americans moved into cities, they were leaving behind many of their traditions. So whether it was storytelling traditions, whether it was folk traditions, whether it was spiritual tradition, all of that worried her. And I think she used her book as a way to make sure that younger generations still had access to some of these folklore and and folk traditions that had informed her life. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Nadra Niddle. She's a Los Angeles-based journalist who's been a staff writer for Vox Media, Digital First Media, and the Gannett USA Today Network. Her writing has also appeared in The Atlantic, The Guardian, The New York Times, Salon, and religious publications such as Outreach and America Magazines. She's the author of the 2019 book, Recognizing Microaggressions. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Toni Morrison's Spiritual Vision, Faith, folktales, and feminism in her life and literature. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Nadra Niddle. 
She's a Los Angeles-based journalist who has been a staff writer for Vox Media, Digital First Media, and the Gannett USA Today Network. Her writing has also appeared in The Atlantic, The Guardian, The New York Times, Salon, and religious publications such as Outreach and America Magazines. She's the author of the 2019 book, Recognizing Microaggressions, and today we're talking about her recent book, Toni Morrison's Spiritual Vision, Faith, Folktales, and Feminism in Her Life and Literature. Well, we've talked about this sort of along the edges of the other subjects that we've thought through in this conversation so far, but now I want to ask about it specifically. Toni Morrison is writing from a standpoint that takes trauma seriously and seriously engages trauma. And I'd love to hear about that because you take this up and you explore and analyze this in your book. And I'd, I'd kind of love to hear about how Toni Morrison is utilizing trauma as a kind of artistic force in her writings and in her spirituality. Yes. I, and I think using trauma is something that she did from her very first book, The Bluest Eye, about a child who ends up being raped and impregnated by her father to books like Beloved, which came 17 years later, that's dealing with not just one Black child or Black girl's trauma, but the trauma of African-Americans as a whole due to slavery. Beloved focuses on many characters, but one in particular who had been traumatized and her mother had been traumatized because of slavery. And there's this idea, it's not just, you know, the institution of slavery that caused this trauma, but the removal from one's homeland as a form of trauma as well. And so I think Beloved is a book that took that and then dealt with how this one character, Setha Suggs, became whole in a way, had been haunted by the horrors of slavery, by the horrors of displacement from her homeland. And she's haunted in the form of a child that she tried to spare from the institution of slavery by killing that child that the child comes back. She's forced to deal with the trauma of slavery, of killing her child, and also forgiving herself for behaving in a way that she thought was in the best interest of her children. As you use this word haunted, I, I, it really strikes me because as we're talking about trauma, you've already begun to line this out for us. But in Toni Morrison, the trauma is locational. So being removed from the homeland and the connections to the homeland, the trauma is generational. It doesn't just it doesn't just a- apply to one particular group, but it applies to groups through history as they have generation after generation. But the other aspect of it is that the trauma is and I don't even know the right word here because haunted makes me think of mystical, makes me think of spectral. You know, it's something otherworldly about the trauma as well. And so talk to us about that spectral dimension, that haunting dimension of the trauma. So in Beloved, Setha Suggs ends up killing one of her daughters to spare that daughter from being enslaved and dealing with or enduring all of the the horrors that she dealt with. She thinks that killing the child, you know, helped that child or, you know, spared that child in some way. 
only for the child's beloved to come back. She, it takes time for her to even recognize who the child is right away, much like, you know, trauma victims who may not realize, for example, maybe they got triggered, that they were even triggered and, and what the cause was for that until they start, you know, maybe doing some work and, and realizing where that came from, what the source of that trauma was. And so this is what happens to Setha Suggs, the return of her daughter in ghostly form makes her have no choice not only to deal with what she did to this daughter, but also, you know, what slavery, what oppression, what imperialism has done to her and has done to African-Americans as a whole. That image of killing her daughter for her daughter's own good, being in that mindset, what flashed in my mind is that scene from Black Panther where Killmonger being played by Michael B. Jordan basically says, you know, bury me at sea like those that refused to be a part of slavery. So they just jumped from the ships. There's a certain way in which death is transformed from the ultimate punishment to almost a, a way of trying to get at liberation where no liberation is available. Now, that's my kind of making connections here. But as I'm beginning to make those connections, how is that sounding to you? And is Morrison trying to reimagine what heaven is like, what the rewards in the sweet by and by are like? Or is she talking in a more revolutionary sense here? Uh, I think she might be doing both. Outside of Beloved and, and Song of Solomon, she deals with this folktale, for example, about the flying Africans. These were Africans who, you know, in the middle of the transatlantic slave trade, jumped overboard and mythology form that, you know, they didn't just jump overboard and get eaten by sharks and die, but some of them were able to elude or evade the institution of slavery by jumping overboard. I think the folktale also deals with people who actually were enslaved, working in the field, and at one point, the tools they were using to, you know, farm and do the work on the plantation, they use those to kind of spin away, fly away to their liberation. So I think definitely Morrison, she, she was interested in this. She discussed this myth. One of her parents came from Georgia, where it was a really popular folktale that Africans flew away. They literally flew away from the institution of slavery to liberate themselves. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Nadra Niddle. She's a Los Angeles-based journalist and has been a staff writer at a number of publications. She's the author of the 2019 book, Recognizing Microaggressions. And today we're talking about her recent book, Toni Morrison's Spiritual Vision, Faith, Folktales, and Feminism in Her Life and Literature. Well, sticking with Michael B. Jordan, there was a, a moment in your book, Toni Morrison's Spiritual Vision, where Michael B. Jordan comes up again, and he's making comments in the wake of Black Panther, and he's saying that there are no stories, there are no folk tales, and that he wants in some way to create new stories and new folk tales. And he gets some pushback about this. And there's actually a moment where he's able to kind of clarify what he means. And I think that's going to be helpful for my listeners in trying to understand the project that Morrison is about here as well. Yeah. So when he said that African-Americans have no folk tales, no mythology, he certainly on social media received a lot of pushback from that. 
And then a month later, you know, came back with the comment trying to clarify what he meant. It's hard to say if, you know, he was trying to save face or he was really, you know, misquoted or taken out of context. But Morrison did want younger generations of Black people to understand that they did have folklore, that they did have a mythology, whether that was directly from Africa or whether that was, you know, African-American folk tales and folklore. And she was interested in both. The Flying Africans tale that I mentioned earlier, for example, would be largely considered more of an African-American tradition. But in, in books like Beloved, she's also engaging West African folklore, specifically in the form of the ghost child Beloved, because many West Africans do believe in this folklore that there are some children, maybe they died when they were very young for whatever reason. I think even in some cases, children who might have been miscarried, that they kind of live on as ghost children. I found something very fascinating about the structure of your book, Toni Morrison's Spiritual Vision. At the early part of your book, you say the bluest eye is really kind of a blueprint for all that follows. You know, all of the works kind of have some structures that you can trace back to the seed crystals that are planted with the bluest eye. And then towards the end of the book, you say there's this interview that happens a couple of years before Toni Morrison dies, and she has trouble now keeping her various works separate and that they are all blending together in her mind and in some ways blending together with her life. I'd love for you to unpack for us a little bit about this notion of if the seed was there at the beginning in the bluest eye and she's seeing all the categories blending together towards the end of her life, how did she think about her work? And are there markers of change that we can point to where she thought differently about her work through the years? Yeah, I'm not sure if she, you know, as she got older, she came back and and said, oh, she wished she wouldn't have written this part of the book or certain things had been different. I know with Paradise, when that book came out, it was heavily criticized. I know she did make a comment kind of suggesting that she wished she had a little more time to work on the book, which I believe came out Christmas Eve of 1997. But because they wanted to make sure it came out on that date, she didn't get as much of a chance to kind of refine that book as she would have liked. That's the most kind of self-critical thing I've heard her say about her writing when she was looking back on a project. But in terms of like the evolution of her writing from The Bluest Eye to her last book, God Bless the Child, I think Morrison was still exploring very similar themes. The divinity of Black women, the persecution of Black women, the displacement, African-American had from Africa and how that kind of reverberated throughout their lives. I don't think those themes ever really went away. You can see them in all of her books. You can also see these kind of older, kind of more mystical, holy women who do seem complete because they never really abandoned their ancestral traditions. And while these characters they're not necessarily the focus of the books, they still kind of serve as some sort of guide to some of the struggling characters, whether those characters accept their words of wisdom or not. So I think she just had certain themes that she played with throughout 
her pretty much 50 year career or so. And she never really abandoned those themes. You used the word just now, wisdom, and that brought back a quotation from your book, Tony Morrison's Spiritual Vision, that really stayed with me. Uh, in, in that late interview in 2017, she says, Tony Morrison says, quote, in order to get to a happy place, what I call happy, even though people are dropping dead all over my books, is the acquisition of knowledge. If you know something at the end that you didn't know before, it's almost wisdom. And that just floored me. I love the idea that she wasn't trying to prove any grand systematic anything with her books. She was not even really trying to prove a position of wisdom, but she was trying to evoke a spectral space, a haunting space that is almost wisdom. And I'd love to think with you for a moment about what she meant by almost wisdom here. I think that might be part of her own spiritual vision and the sense that maybe she didn't think we could truly, you know, the average human could ever have true wisdom. I think, and I'm assuming here that she believed that was reserved for God. Absolute wisdom was something that humans could never quite aspire to. Maybe we could almost have wisdom, but we could never really have complete wisdom just in our part of the human condition. I think that might have been a way she was separating humanity from God. I really like that. And that brings us back to something that you mentioned earlier in the conversation. And in in particular, when we were talking about the character Sula, this notion that there are certain characters in Toni Morrison's works that are there to bring a kind of chaos. And Where I'm kind of understanding that chaos to be is it's not violence for the sake of violence. It's upsetting a certain type of order that excludes. It's upsetting a certain type of orderliness, maybe is a better way to say, that has chosen certain people to be scapegoats. And characters come in and they upset that orderliness for the sake of hospitality and inclusion. But as I'm saying all this, you know, I'm getting this not from reading Morrison directly, but I'm getting this from reading your book, Tony. Morrison's spiritual vision. So as I'm saying this back to you, am I one of the readers that you hope will come to your book and will get this kind of message from your book and will want to go deeper into Morrison's work as a result of it? Yes, absolutely. I would love people who have not read Morrison's work or maybe they've only read a book or two to find what I've written interested enough to go and revisit or visit for the first time her body of literature and what she was trying to convey through the books. And I think you're absolutely right. And Paradise, again, is an example of trying to kind of upset this order that might be imposed upon all of us in terms of gender constructs and class constructs and racial constructs. Some some of the characters in her book serve to kind of upend those constructs. And Sula is an example. She is not behaving in the way that the people in her community believe a Black woman should behave. And as a consequence of that, she becomes an outcast, a scapegoat, and, you know, quote-unquote witch. 
You mentioned earlier in the conversation that you began really engaging with Toni Morrison's work as a result of an assignment to write an article for America Magazine. And that began to introduce you to not only uh, a deeper reading of Morrison's work, but also Morrison's Catholicism and spiritual journey. I'm wondering how you have changed as a result of this deep reading of Morrison's work, and if you're willing to talk about it, how your spirituality has changed as a result of this deep engagement with Toni Morrison's life and work. Sure. Uh, One thing I would say, though, is I majored in, in English and American studies in college, so I was familiar with Morrison's work before the America Magazine assignment. I just want to clarify that. So I had taken classes that really focused, one class was all Morrison, all Virginia Woolf, and just kind of comparing those two authors. So I had read most of her books just as a result of, of my college education. But I think what the America assignment did was really orient me towards religion in her book. And I don't think when I was in college, that was something that I had examined closely. And in terms of my own spirituality, from reading her books, from exploring religion in her books, I I think things just kind of lined up. In a way, you mentioned Michael B. Jordan, so I'm going to just go back to his character really quickly. And Black Panther, I have a similar heritage to that character. I have an African-American mother from Tennessee, And then I have a father who is part of the Yoruba people of West Africa, Nigeria in particular. And so as I have gotten older, I've taken some time to really learn about some of those West African spiritual traditions that my, my parents are divorced too, I should say. So I didn't really grow up with those traditions. And I would say over the past five years or so, I've made a concerted effort to find out more about West African spirituality, but also as an African-American to look at the ways those ancestral bounds weren't broken by slavery. How when you go to the Black church, one of the reasons it's different from the white church is because of our West African ancestry. And, you know, there's traditions in the Black church like call and response, for example, that aren't found in in white Christian churches. And so I think we've always been distinct. And I think in the past five years or so, I've become really interested in exploring that. Well, Nadra Niddle, I have to say, I was just so pleased to read your book, Toni Morrison's Spiritual Vision. I learned so much from it. It gave me as a person who has, you know, heard the name but has not really had an entryway into this body of literature, a a way to kind of get in and kind of handles to begin to to look and explore. And I'm so thankful to you because now I feel like there's an entire just treasure of riches that await me as I go into Toni Morrison's work, thanks to you. I'm so grateful that you took the time to research and write this book, but thank you especially for taking the time today to talk about it with me and my listeners. Oh, thank you, David. I really appreciate your close reading of my book. I'm honored. (laughs) 
We've been speaking today with Nadra Niddle. She's a Los Angeles-based journalist who's been a staff writer at Vox Media, Digital First Media, and the Gannett USA Today Network. Her writing has also appeared in The Atlantic, The Guardian, The New York Times, Salon, and in religious publications such as Outreach and America Magazines. She's the author of the 2019 book, Recognizing Microaggressions. Today, we've been talking about her recent book, Toni Morrison's Spiritual Vision, Faith, Folktales, and Feminism in Her Life and Literature. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.